360 degrees. Hop high, 360 degrees. Hop high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. Hop high. Welcome to Full Circle, brought to you by participants and volunteers of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Tonight we feature a program produced by First Voice graduate Sarah Blanco, a Flashpoints contributing producer. It played on Flashpoints on July 10th, and this important information is brought to you again tonight on Full Circle. Let's listen as Sarah shares the program Billboard. Today on the show, as cluster bombs are being sent to the Ukraine, we hear a roundtable discussion with guests who have firsthand knowledge of what these and other anti-personnel weapons do and how they still affect people decades later. We'll also check in with Ziad Abbas for an update about Janine refugee camp. All this coming up straight ahead. Stay tuned. I'm host Sarah Blanco, sitting in for Dennis Bernstein. We're going to talk about cluster bombing with three people who have experience with what cluster bombing does to the land and to the people. The U.S. is saying they're sending cluster bombs to Ukraine to use against Russia, even as other countries where they've been used still are suffering from them. Joining us today, we have Kathy Kelly, who is the board president of World Beyond War and a coordinator of the forthcoming Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. She lived alongside ordinary civilians being bombed by cluster munitions in Lebanon in 2006 and has visited survivors who've lost limbs because of cluster bombs used in wars against Afghanistan and Pakistan. Also joining us is Ron Carver, Associate Fellow for New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, He's the co-editor of Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. Ron also spent three years as a civilian helping soldiers who were against the war in Vietnam help them set up coffee houses and underground newspapers. Also joining us is Mike Ferner, the Interim Director at Veterans for Peace. Mike was a Navy corpsman, 1969 to 1973. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time today. I want to first direct my question to Kathy Kelly. Kathy, what was your initial reaction when you found out the U.S. would send cluster bombs to Ukraine? Well, Sarah, I felt deep dismay. The decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine is a decision to prolong the war long after a ceasefire may eventually be signed because the dangers posed by unexploded ordnance by cluster bombs that don't explode, but which are dropped as little bomblets all over uh, civilian areas as well as military bases and affecting the infrastructure can cause people to lose limbs and lose their lives, including children, for many, many years to come. It's an, a, a, a terrible weapon. And humanity made a great gain when in 2010, the Convention on Cluster Munitions was signed by more than 120 countries. 
the United States didn't sign that convention. And so now we see these bombs being uh, retrieved from places where they were in storage and they'll be used again. And it sets a green light for more and more hideous suffering. Kathy, the U.S. occupied Afghanistan for 20 years. Can you tell us about the use of cluster bombing there and what's happening today? Sarah, a, a group called the Emergency Surgical Centers for Victims of War has uh, for decades been treating Afghans who've been injured by cluster bombs and other unexploded ordnance. And in their most recent report, they said that even now, an, an average of three people come to their clinics every day who have been maimed, seriously wounded because of unexploded ordnance, including cluster bombs. And I wonder if I could mention having been in Lebanon in 2006 during what is sometimes referred to as the Second Lebanon War. The Israeli Defense Forces dropped over a million cluster bombs on Lebanon during that time, and over a thousand civilians were killed. And I remember being in a civilian home in the south of Lebanon, and all of the big plate glass windows were shattered. And so, you know, I was trying to be useful. The family members were away, and I was with, I was with one of their sons, and I'd swept up at least two boxes full of shattered glass and one big pl plastic bag. And I thought, well, if I empty this glass out into the garden, then I can finish sweeping up another container full of broken glass. And fortunately, young Muhammad said, no, my mother would not want you to do this. She's a gardener. You can't put that in her garden. And I thought, well, I don't think she's going to want it in her kitchen either, but okay. The next morning, there was a knock at the door. And it was somebody from the town municipality who wanted me to look at exactly the spot where I would have dumped that broken glass. And there was an unexploded cluster bomblet. I could have killed everyone in that house. And then we were driving along a roadside again in southern Lebanon and skidded to a stop right before we would have driven over a bomblet. And all we had was a big pen and a piece of cardboard to write down, stop, danger. Well, can you imagine that these bomblets were scattered across children's schoolyards, their playgrounds, the infrastructure, the farms. And so when people would return to their homes and to their farms, they will always be at danger. And, and this is what cluster bombs do, and it is what will be done to people in Ukraine and Russia. So far, we've heard that in Afghanistan, people are still, still suffering from previously unexploded cluster bombs. And we're talking about civilian life. Is it that more civilians are hurt than people in the military? Well, for instance, you know, the war supposedly has ended. The U.S. troops have withdrawn from Afghanistan. And so who will be harmed by the explosions of cluster bombs? It could be a child out trying to help his father, uh, you know, tend to mulberry trees. It could be uh, somebody who is on a family picnic and just going up a mountainside. These, It's an indiscriminate form of killing. And um, it, it creates a danger in an ongoing way that really can't be determined. Thank you, Kathy. 
I turn next to Ron Carver. Ron, you spent three years as a civilian helping soldiers who were against the war in Vietnam. You helped set up coffee houses and underground newspapers. Ron, can you tell us about how leftover bombs affect Vietnam still today? In the past six years, I've been uh, visiting uh, Vietnam eight, eight times. Uh, but I want to start by saying uh, cluster bombs doesn't really describe what we're talking about. Uh, these are anti-personnel weapons, anti-personnel bombs that that come in clusters of, of 100 or 200 within a larger mother bomb, and then uh, they, they're dropped down. And the reason that they're called anti-personnel bombs, I know that the media is calling them cluster bombs, but they're called anti-personnel bombs because in fact they have no significant military use. Uh, they cannot uh, stop a tank or destroy a tank. They cannot destroy a, a, a building that's used for any kind of military they're used to uh, harm people, to maim them, and to terrorize people. And that was what they were used for in Vietnam, and that's what they're used for today. When the government says that they want to use them militarily uh, in Ukraine or allow the Ukrainians to use them, it's because they don't have any more of the larger uh, weaponry that can take out tanks or uh, destroy military headquarters or, or um, uh, arms depots. And, and, and these anti-personnel bombs won't do that. So they're saying that while they could let the Ukrainians use them and <clears throat> fire them or drop them uh, over locations where there are soldiers, and they may end up doing that. But what I saw in Vietnam, uh, I, I, saw, I saw hundreds of people who work with an organization called Project Renew, uh, which is located in Quang Tri province that straddles a former demilitarized zone. And I saw them uh, retrieving these, uh, they've got 300 people working full-time uh, in the fields in just this one province and responding to emergency calls when people find them. But there's another danger. So on, on one hand, farmers uh, plowing a field could run into one and it could explode and do a kill or do or maim a, a farmer. Um, but there's another danger. These are, so that the audience understands, we're talking about something that's approximately the size of a baseball. And that's part of the insidiousness because it looks like a baseball, except that it's metal. But I, I met uh, at the uh, headquarters of Project Renew in Quantry Province. I met Ho Van Lai, a young man. He's now in his 20s. Uh, he lost both legs, he lost an arm, uh, he was blinded. How did that happen? He was 10 years old, and he and two cousins 
uh, found one of these uh, anti-personnel bomblets and they started playing with them and poof, it exploded. And his two cousins were killed and he was so badly damaged. And when I met him, I was really moved. Uh, and he said to me, we had a private conversation. He said to me, do you think I can still have a productive life? And he asked that in a pleading way because he didn't think he could. Uh, he had been out of school uh, for years. He, he finally, after four years, he went back and he was able to finish his grade school and high school. He enrolled in college, but he had to drop out because his eyesight kept feeling, failing further and he couldn't engage in his studies. Um, it, it's, it, it's incredibly, it's incredibly sad. It's incredibly outrageous uh, that, that we use these weapons. And, and remember, it wasn't just these weapons. We were also using napalm, uh, which was a chemical made by Dow Chemical company that stick to people's skin and burn them alive. Again, it's not for military uses. We used Agent Orange, which uh, uh, includes dioxin. It's, it's an, essentially a nerve agent. And I, I met uh, young people there, a second and third generation young people. These are, are who were affected, who can't walk, who can't talk. It affects that people like cerebral palsy. And, you know, how could we do that during that war? Bad enough, but to keep doing it now, it, it's just appallingly outrageous. Thank you for sharing those terrible stories, Ron, and that you continue sharing them despite the, the hideousness. I'd like to ask Mike, can you talk to us about the politics and money. Um, for example, you know, why could it be that the U.S. didn't sign the treaty? What does that, what can that really mean? Well, if we could get inside the heads of people who made that decision not to sign the treaty, uh, I'm not sure what we would find, but it would be probably pretty scary because uh, to think that this sort of a weapon, which uh, Ron accurately called anti-personnel, uh, to use this kind of a weapon um, and in the face of uh, hundreds of countries who are saying no, to use it in the, in the face of that uh, decision by people around the world, you must, you must have to have um, a vision of human life as subordinate to what the empire wants to do. And I, it, it pains me to say this being an American citizen, but uh, the truth of the matter is our government is an empire and it really is going to do whatever the empire needs, which is to control the world's resources and make sure that no other uh, nation is militarily equal to or superior. So when that is your modus operandi, if that's how you see 
the, the world, then the decisions that you make uh, are going to have no bearing on what is humane or not humane, or maybe we've been using this weapon and it's not humane, but maybe now's the time to get rid of it. No, you're going to maintain everything in your arsenal that you can possibly maintain that's going to allow you to inflict the kind of, as Ron said, harm, maiming, and terrorizing. That's what these weapons do, these anti-personnel weapons. And that's the only reason that we have them. So, you know, what, what, can you say, what can you say about the people who make the decision not to go along with a worldwide movement to ban them? Um, it's despicable. That's, that's it. And, and people say, well, the Russians have been using them in Ukraine. Well, yeah, they have been. And other nations, a, a very small number of nations around the world, um, have continued to use them since the, the banning treaty uh, went into effect. But what kind of rationale is that for us to do the same thing? You know, that, that's insane. And, and the, these um, bomblets that remain unexploded, or as the previous two people mentioned, they're going to be inflicting damage and uh, misery for decades to come. I mean, we're still bringing up uh, uh, having to defuse uh, artillery shells from World War One. You know, the, the farmers in France and Belgium uh, every few years, even back as far as that was, are still finding unexploded uh, artillery shells. Uh, same thing about World War Two, um, and certainly. Uh, what Ron's saying about what's happening in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia to people. I mean, 27 million unexploded bomblets uh, are estimated to be in Laos, just in the, in the country of Laos, from all of the bombing that was done during the, the war in Indochina. 11,000 people have been killed or injured from those after the war, 30% of whom are children. And it, it goes on and on. In Iraq, in 1991, uh, we, we dropped 61,000 bombs of, of this type with 20 million of the individual bomblets in them. So there's no way you can clean this up. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a weapon of ongoing destruction. Uh, maybe we wouldn't call it a weapon of mass destruction, but it is ongoing for decades afterwards. And as civilized people, we have got to rise up and demand that our country stop using these. There is no excuse. No matter what other country is using them, there is no excuse for us to do that. Kathy, did you want to say something to that? Oh, well, thank you, Sarah. I did want to mention that we ought to consider the reality of proliferation as well, because in Ukraine, we've also seen a proliferation of drone warfare. And it's been suggested that the Ukrainian military will dismantle some of the cluster bombs it's going to get from the United States in order to arm its drones with these bomblets. Now, I don't think fear is ever a good motive for the actions that we want to take. But as we look at this kind of proliferation, it, it's not impossible that uh, non-state actors could acquire drone technology and 
cluster munitions, and maybe people in the United States would someday experience the utter abject terror that Ron and Mike have described and that I saw in Lebanon. I remember a woman in Lebanon at the funeral of her little daughter asking her son to bring a picture of this little six-year-old girl who'd been killed by an Israeli Defense Force paved way bomb. And she tapped the photo and she said, who is the terrorist? Is she the terrorist? And so, you know, we've seen the war on communism, the war on drugs, the war on terror. But we have to ask ourselves, who are the terrorists? Who is terrifying the world, if not the people who refuse to sign the bans on these terrible munitions like cluster bomblets, anti-personnel bombs, not to mention our refusal not to sign the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear War. This is Full Circle on KPFA Radio 94.1 FM. We are replaying a program produced by First Voice graduate Sara Blanco for Flashpoints, which was originally broadcast on July 10th. And now, back to that show, hosted by Sarah Blanco. I, I think that, um, though it's useful uh, for, for Mike to mention that uh, there, there are occasional bombs found from World War I and World War II. Uh, but that pulls in comparison to the hundreds and, uh, hundreds and of thousands uh, of these uh, anti-personnel bombs that are still littering the countryside uh, in in Vietnam, from what I know and what I've seen, uh, let alone Laos and Cambodia and uh, soon to be Ukraine and, and I guess, uh, Western Russia near near that. Um, so th- that's that's why it's particularly insidious. It's not just an occasional. I mean, uh, there are uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are maimed uh, every year still. Uh, and the war has been over for 48 years. And uh, even though th- there are great uh, strides made in cleaning up these anti-personnel bomblets, uh, they they predict it'll be a- another 30 years before all this uh, land can be uh, used safely. And, and children don't have to uh, worry about uh, where they play or what they play with. You know, one of the things that gets me about these uh, anti-personnel munitions and how long they last is when, when you look at the, the history of what the U.S. has done in country after country, just for example, Nicaragua, Guatemala, we go in there. And whether it's economic sanctions or funding uh, groups like the Contras uh, or outright invasions, we go in there, destroy the economy, destroy a significant part of the environment, and then we walk away and hardly anybody in this country remembers any of what we did there. The same is true of Vietnam and Indochina in general and Iraq and on and on and on. The thing is with these kinds of munitions, we go in, wreck a country's economy, environment, uh, any number of people get killed and injured, and we walk away. But this continues for years and decades 
like Ron was saying, it's going to be 50 years pretty soon since the Vietnam War ended and people are still dying. And, you know, how in the world can you hold your head up in a country that continues to do that over and over? And I just I'm glad that there are organizations um, like the ones that uh, Kathy and Ron belong to and like Veterans for Peace. And it doesn't matter how much of a minority voice we are right now somebody has got to stand up and say what we're doing is criminal and it's wrong and this there's a rally coming up in scranton on the uh, 22nd of this month that's being organized by world beyond war veterans for peace code pink and several other groups and it's going to be it's going to take place at a arms factory in scranton that manufactures artillery shells uh, not to not the anti-personnel munitions we've been talking about, but uh, these are the shells that supposedly they're running out of. And so it, we're going to ship them anti-personnel weapons. And we need to continue to do this at every opportunity to stand up and and say no, that we want our hard-earned tax dollars going to life and not death. And it's time that we change this country's priorities. And so when Mike says that it's so important for us to withdraw our complicity, to say we don't want to be represented by people who will continue this reckless spending on weapons of mass destruction, conventional weapons, constant threatening uh, about use of weapons, we do have to ask ourselves, well, who does benefit from prolonging and exacerbating these wars? Who does benefit when cities are completely destroyed and have to be completely rebuilt. And of course, there are beneficiaries who are going to make enormous profits. I'm thinking particularly of people we could call merchants of death. And that would be Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and the manufacturers of drones called General Atomics. Those four companies alone make enormous gains, and if the wars end sooner, then their profits won't be as enormous. And do they try to influence our legislators? Oh, yes, they take, you know, large percentages of their profits, and they pay lobbyists to go in and persuade elected representatives to continue to bankroll them. They make sure that their former employees become part of the government, government structures that make these kinds of decisions in the Defense Department and the Secretary of State's Department. And um, what would begin to draw more attention to this kind of criminal activity? We're hoping that many, many people will join together for what we're calling the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal that begins November 10th of 2023. And we'll put these corporations on trial, a public trial, trying to hold them accountable for what they've caused in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in so many countries around the world where people meant us no harm. But where, as Mike and Ron have said, the United States communicated, if you don't subordinate yourselves to fulfill our national interest, we will clobber you with every munition we have in our arsenal and kill your children for generations. That was Kathy Kelly. We're talking here with Mike Ferner and Ron Carver as well. And so 
you know, the question is really, where is the war zone, right? If these are anti-personnel weapons that can kill indiscriminately, the war zone is what everywhere, right? The entire country, maybe even a, an entire land mass. And I don't think you have the answer for this, but, you know, it appears that Ukraine leadership and military uh, want these anti-personnel weapons, these cluster bombs, I just can't help but wonder what the people of Ukraine want. Because, of, of course, nobody wants war on their person, right? They don't want to be bombed. They don't want to be invaded. They want to be able to protect themselves. But um, sometimes it's really hard to be able to, to hear that voice. And the, the reason that it's hard to hear that voice, Sarah, is because the people who are running the show have the voice and these are the the people who are running the uh relatively small number of corporations uh kathy named a few of them uh they're people that are running those corporations major decision makers in our own government and they are running as an old saying but they're running like a horse with a bit in its mouth paying no attention to the rider, no attention to the people who are saying, whoa, slow down here, because they feel that they don't have to, because uh, all uh, legend and myth aside, we are not living in a democracy. We're living in a, in a country that is controlled and run for the interests of a very small number of people. And until we can figure out a way to uh, change that, we're going to constantly be coming up against one of these crimes against humanity after another. And it's it's no wonder that um, this that our country is doing what we're doing around the world because the people in this country aren't governing it. The small number of folks who are profiting from these wars are the ones who are running the show. And you know, things aren't going to change until we can change that. And every bit of resistance that we can do on the way to that change is important. And Sarah, I think it's also important to recognize the different ways in which the mainstream media egged on the counteroffensive. The Ukrainians are going to be launching their counteroffensive. These are the weapons they have. This is one possible strategic plan. This is what will be the consequence. And, and at no point do we hear a similar coverage of any efforts for negotiation, of any efforts to call for a ceasefire. In fact, um, those kinds of efforts are looked upon almost as, as treasonous activity. We, we don't hear blow-by-blow -blow coverage of the efforts that people in other countries have made trying to drag uh, Ukraine and Russia to the peace table, trying to work out the possibilities for negotiation. And of course, you know, it, that, that's not a swift process. Whenever it starts, you won't see the end point uh, for some time on down the road. And many more people will be killed and maimed and displaced. But what if our mainstream media was clamoring every day for more information about and more attention to the possibility of getting a ceasefire established and putting an end to this war. You know, I think that's all well and good. And it w God knows I'd love to see this war 
end quickly. I'd love to see negotiations highlighted and promoted. But I think that we we ought to think that I, I truly believe that that this announcement by President Biden uh, to transfer these anti-personnel bombs to Ukraine opens up a new possibility uh, for a, for a progressive uh, counteroffensive to th- this military action. I, I don't. I think that it's important for us on the on the progressive side, for us on the left, to 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 realize uh, that that with this decision, Biden has just stepped off a precipice, and it's up to us to begin a robust mobilization of our friends and neighbors and comrades and cohorts and and uh, and and rebuild a massive peace movement in this country to say no. I mean, we were getting discouraged, I think, and lulled by the fact that this is continued without that type of movement, without even the, the type of uh, large protest uh, b- before the uh, invasion of, of Iraq. Um, I, I just think that uh, this is beyond the the pall right the the that i mean what if he wanted to announce uh, the the use again of nuclear weapons as he did in in japan as we did in japan uh, how about napalm again how about agent orange we're not using napalm and agent orange anymore that's a decision that this government has made and all the presidents since then on the left and the right, the Republicans and Democrats have gone along with. And now it's Biden choosing to, to reuse anti-personnel weapons. We have to say no. And we have to, uh, I think we as activists on the left have to see the power of this. And we have to better communicate as you were doing, uh, Sarah, on this program, what the horror is of these, the long-lasting effect, the insidiousness. Um, And I think that if we do that, and if we do it effectively, I think we can get Biden to back down. I'm not saying we can stop the first shipments, but I think we can get him to back down and to eventually assign this treaty banning uh, these uh, cluster anti-personnel bombs. I truly believe that. I truly believe that's what we're obligated to do. Thank you so much. That was the voice of Ron Carver. And Ron is Associate Fellow for New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. And we also have been speaking with Mike Ferner, the Interim Director at Veterans for Peace, and Kathy Kelly, Board President of World Beyond War, and lived alongside civilians bombed by cluster munitions in Lebanon and has also visited survivors who lost limbs because of cluster bombs used in wars against Afghanistan and Pakistan. I'd like to close with how people can learn more about cluster bombing, what it's done historically, what actions are taking place, 
uh, so that people get more information in general, regardless of where they are on the political uh, spectrum. Who'd like to tell us about that in closing? Well, th this is Ron Carver. Uh, I can promote my book, uh, Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. And that was that war, and they opposed it while the war was going on. Tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers who maybe, uh, to a large extent, I mean, a, a large number of them are people who enlisted, assumed that the government was telling us the truth and the right thing to do and that this was a, a just war. And when they went to Vietnam and they learned what it was about, they began to oppose it. Um, I, I think that that's critical. And I'd like to read uh, one poem because from a Vietnam veteran, W.D. Earhart from Pennsylvania. Because the other damage that this does is to our own souls, our own, the moral basis of this country. So this is a very short poem called Making the Children Behave. Do they think of me now in those strange Asian villages where nothing ever seemed quite human but myself and my few grim friends moving through them hunched in lines when they tell stories to their children of the evil that awaits misbehavior is it me they conjure well i want to thank ron for that very prescient poem and also uh, encourage all the listeners to flashpoints to stay in touch with the website for world beyond war I'm, I'm part of that group, and it's one of the endorsing groups, along with Veterans for Peace and Code Pink, which will be promoting the uh, demonstration on uh, July 22nd at Scranton Air Force Base. And we want to greatly encourage people to go to any military bases that are producing artillery shells and munitions, uh, and, and also to join Ron in wanting to oppose President Biden's decision, his very unfortunate decision, to send anti-personnel cluster munitions to Ukraine. And then, Mike, anything else you'd like to add in terms just the final, how can people learn more about the overall topic? Well, there are uh, places that people can go to. There is a cluster munition coalition uh, they're available on the website. Stop Cluster Munitions is their website name. Uh, Veterans for Peace has got a website, as, as Kathy mentioned, World Beyond War. Um, and the information is out there. Uh, your listeners are, are probably um, among the more active seekers of uh, good information, so they know where to, where to find this, this information. But uh, Getting this out there to people and giving them a chance to hear that there are others around the country that are not just sitting back paralyzed from inaction, that that there are a good number of us out here that are going to raise as much hell as needs to be raised. And it's really great that the listeners that you have are able to plug into that fact. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoints, Mike Ferner. Thanks very much, Sarah. And then uh, Kathy Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Good to be with you. 
and Ron Carver, thank you so much for joining us. That was Sarah Blanco, contributing producer for Flashpoints and a First Voice graduate. Tonight you're hearing a replay of a show she produced for Flashpoints that first played on July 10th. Hello, you are listening to Flashpoints. I'm contributing producer Sarah Blanco, sitting in for Dennis Bernstein. We talk now with Ziad Abbas. He is the director of Mecca, the Middle East Children's Alliance, and he identifies himself as a Palestinian refugee. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I'd like to check in with you. Uh, last week, you brought a report directly from the executive director of the Freedom Theater in Janine Refugee Camp. Any new updates from them or from others as people rebuild in Janine Refugee Camp? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, the news is coming. Many reports, many people, they are visiting the refugee camp these days, immediately after the, the Israeli withdrawal from the refugee camp. And here when we say with the draw, it means they are they moved only a few miles outside, but still they are controlling the whole city of Jenin, where their checkpoints spread around. And there are many like uh, uh, extremely like reports coming and many journalists, they are doing their own investigation. And today, actually, there were a report published in the Arabic news about like a child, he was uh, assassinated inside Jenin. And this child, he's 16 years old. And the Israelis, they accused him he was carrying a gun when the snipers shot him and killed him. And actually, in fact, there were some videos published, actually. Now it's uh, publicly that this boy is like he was without any gun, just he was standing in front of the hospital, Al-Amal hospital, when the, one of the Israeli snipers, he was shot him and uh, killed him. And the name of the boy, his name, Abdul Rahman Hardan, he is 16 years old. And in the videos, it's very clear about that. This boy actually, and the story here is really the, the, the tragedy in this story. This boy heard the mosque that they announced in the mosque that the Al-Amal hospital need the people to come to donate the blood because they are in shortage of the blood. So he went to the hospital and while he was there, he was shot and killed. But the Israeli story that everyone killed in the in this uh, attack on Jenin refugee camp, they were Palestinian fighters. And uh, actually among them, four people, they were killed below 18 years old. Actually, they are Palestinian uh, uh, children. At the same time, there are many other reports related, like still 110 people injured. Among them, 20 people, they are in very serious conditions. And some of them in the ICUs and the hospitals there. And uh, you speak about hundreds of Palestinian families. They are not, it's not possible for them to return back to their house, houses. Some of their houses, these houses actually destroyed totally and some of it partially, but it's not livable. And still they try to find a refuge inside the camp or around the camp uh, 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 in this refugee camp. And in addition to that, the reports coming from Jenin that the destruction uh, and the, the, how they destroyed the infrastructure in the, inside the camp. It will take some time to rebuild. Uh, this is the, 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 the results coming from people there. At the same time, there are many solidarity groups visiting the camp to try to support and help. Even for us as Mecca right now, we have a campaign 
where we try to support the people engineering the community inside the refugee camp through first aid or the other organization working with children. For the people to learn about this campaign, you can go to our website, maccaforbeast.org. You can learn more about this kind of uh, campaigns. And the updates is still Palestine everywhere, like still the settlers, they are attacking uh, villages, attacking people like today near Ramallah and some, a few villages where settlers marching and provoking the Palestinian community. And sometimes they invaded their own villages. And that, Sarah, this is the, the iron, the, the tragedy there, that if the people try to defend their houses and try to respond to the settlers' attack, they will be arrested and charged in the court. But Israeli settlers rarely, rarely, after hundreds of attacks to arrest a, a, a settler for a few hours and they release them. And this is when you speak about discrimination and apartheid, how these laws applies to Palestinian but not applying for the, for the Israeli settlers. And so you'd mentioned the retreat of Israeli military forces. However, you mentioned that that doesn't mean that they're going very far away. What else might people be experiencing moving forward? When I say they withdraw as the military uh, vehicles, it's not there, but they, the drones is still there. There are drones even recently, like even the, the, the people in Gaza, they shot one of the, the drones. The drones, they are all over. It's not just in Jenin, in many parts of Palestine, like Gaza Strip. Gaza Strip under siege for 17 years. And the drones, it's part of the daily, daily be, life of the people, 24 hours, the drones in the sky, and the same right now. And this is the new technology that the Israelis, they are using, where the drones, they are moving uh, around the camp and watching everything moving inside the camp. At the same time, for the people to be, uh, now access the, the movement in Palestine, it's very hard. Like I'm in touch with our staff members in the ground, our colleagues, our partners, even for the people they want to go to visit the refugee camp, show solidarity, they have difficulties to cross checkpoints. Checkpoints, they are spread. And here you speak about tens of military checkpoints around villages, bypass roads, uh, the, 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 the entrance of big cities or refugee camps. And this is sometimes it takes hours to pass a checkpoint. The other thing for people living inside Jenin right now, that still they are struggling with the basic needs, that they don't have running water, the electricity is not working well, and it will take time to, time to fix that. And it's changing their life, like still the people, they are traumatized, it will take uh, some time. And when I say Israelis, they are, like they are controlling the air, they control on the grounds, like the movement inside Palestine, and all over West Bank, and in Jenin area, actually now it's extra, but it's, uh, uh, it's very hard for the people uh, to move. And I can imagine for people like living in Berkeley and they want to go to San Francisco, sometimes you need to pass two, three checkpoints to get there. And this is the, the, the hardest part for, uh, for people. Uh, I hear like people like they leave from Jerusalem, which usually it's two hours to get to Jenin. It takes them four or five hours to get there because they need to pass the checkpoints in order to go visit and to condole the families they lost their children or to be in solidarity with people they lost their houses. As someone who's able to speak to people directly there, what else do you think they wish for us to know? The people all the time they speak even, sometimes they joke about it because we, 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 we hear this a lot as Palestinians, how the American government, 
they gave the green light to the Israelis to do this attack. And it was a huge statement came from the White House about, uh, uh, I quote here, Israel has the right to defend themselves. I don't know how they attack this camp and this defending themselves, killing 12 Palestinians, among them four children. And some of them, like not some of them, like some of these people, uh, injured people, there are 20 of them still in serious conditions. And they say, the people frustrated from the American government position where they all the time, they protect Israel. And in every attack, everything that Israel, and this is no one holding Israel accountable for. And the sad part, you read these kind of reports coming from Palestine, and all the time there is an investigation, investigation after investigation, but even the results come very clear. And who hold Israel accountable? Actually, Israel is protected. Protected by United States government, protected by United Kingdom, despite the fact there are some criticism coming to Israel government, but no one holding Israel. And this is what the people they want, the people here in the United States to be aware of that. And the people looking for solidarity and support coming from U.S. Uh, government and from U.S. Uh, uh, the people living in the United States. They want to learn that. It's, 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 it's comparing how, how the people they treated South Africa during the apartheid system in South Africa. And they are asking the people to take a stand and to hold Israel accountable and to deal with it like any people under oppression, any people they are facing colonial system in this world. They want the people to take a stand of that for that. Tell us about some upcoming activities, uh, especially the Ride for Palestine. Yeah, we, uh, we as Mecca, as I said before, we try to respond sometimes to emergencies on the ground in Palestine, but we have annual activities. And this year we had the second annual ride for Palestine. It's a bike. We have almost 150 participants. They will ride for Palestine in solidarity with Palestine. Solidarity with Palestinian refugees, 75 years of the catastrophe, the Nakba, and in solidarity with the communities they are living in villages, including and refugee camps, including Jini refugee camp. This is an event it will take uh, uh, on is Sunday, July 16th. It will start like for the bikers. You can go to our website, meccaforbeast.org, or you can go to rideforpalestine.com and learn more. We will have the ride at morning and at noon, we will have a bigger festival, solidarity festival. We invite the people to come join the, the ride or to come to join the, the festival. And it's open for the people. Go to our website, they can learn more. And so will you do us a favor and tell uh, Mustafa from the Freedom Theater that we say hello and we're thinking of him? Anything else you'd like to mention about the Freedom Theater in closing? Yeah, Mustafa, actually, they are very busy right now because they are trying to deal with all the refugee camp. There are many people that are in need and in the ground. For the Freedom Theater, partially it was attacked and destroyed. They are trying to continue their program, especially working with children. And for sure, we will send them our solidarity from our program. We'll let them know about that. And we thank them for participating in this program. Thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint Sayyid Abbas. He is the director of the Middle East Children's Alliance, or Mecca, or Mecca for Peace, as he's been mentioning. He's a Palestinian refugee, self-identified, and he has historically been a journalist for, for quite some time. 
Thank you for coming to give us an update on Janine Refugee Camp. Thank you, Sana. We'll close out today with a song by the Ramones, I Believe in Miracles. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you, Sarah Blanco and the Flashpoints team. That brings us to the end of tonight's Full Circle, which featured an edition of Flashpoints produced by our First Voice graduate, Sarah Blanco. That show was produced by Frank Sterling, who's a wonderful and skilled technical producer of Full Circle. The First Voice production consultant is Joy Moore, and I'm Miss M, the training director. 
Our Full Circle contributors are Pamela Lyons, Shiloh Burton, along with Stevie J, who is also a co-host and contributor to The History of Funk. Lisa Detner, co-founder and producer for Women's Magazine, and First Voice graduate Natalie Kilmer, podcast producer for West Coast Water Justice. And a big shout out to Ron Thompson, one of our graduates who's recovering from some health challenges. We do support the release of all political prisoners, including Mamiya Abu-Jamal and Leonard Peltier. As Franklin says, please remember to protect your health and humanity. Please stay tuned for our colleagues and mentors of La Onda Mahita.